Norm, please report to the stage. <laughs> I know, we thought so too, and then he's like, nope, just one today. Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and make your way in and stand with us. We're going to begin worshiping the Lord this morning, singing Everlasting God.
Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Ambassador Bible Fellowship. My name is Bruce Groves, and I'm the pastor of discipleship here. And uh, would love uh, to get together with you and answer any questions that you have. If you're visiting for the first time, feel free to catch Thomas or myself afterwards. Or uh, on the back table there, we have a connection card. Feel free to fill that out. There's a little bucket. Uh, Just drop it in there. Would love to uh, schedule a time for coffee uh, to get to know you, uh, what you're looking for, uh, for a church home, for your family, and to hear your story. I would love to just meet you in that uh, during that time. Would want to bring to your attention some uh, upcoming events. Uh, If you have your bulletin that you were given as you came in, want to highlight on your first page there as you turn in. Uh, we are hoping, uh, I just realized I didn't have the final word on, uh, children's ministry. What's the, uh, uh, are we starting next week on, okay, yes, so, big, big news. Uh, first time since coronavirus, we'll be, uh, opening up the, uh, children's ministry. You'll notice the information there. There'll be, uh, infant cry room. Uh, and so you can, uh, there'll be no drop off, but if you're interested in staying with your kids, there'll be uh, a feed of the service uh, in the room, uh, and that'll be uh, available starting next week. There'll also be a nursery toddler room uh, and a pre-K and the elementary class. You'll notice the details and for which students uh, are listed there. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to speak with uh, Marissa Stephenson. Her contact information is there, uh, and she'd be glad to answer those uh, for you. Also, this week uh, is the kickoff of our equipping uh, or our growth groups. Uh, If you would flip over to the next page, you'll notice uh, we have listed all of our growth groups. Uh, We meet, uh, they meet during the week, uh, and I encourage you, uh, look at the schedule, Uh, the times, and this is the place where uh, you get to know others by name and they get to know you by name. It's where we practice the one another's. It's where a lot of uh, uh, the life-on-life ministry occurs here at Ambassador Bible Fellowship. encourage you to make that a priority uh, because that's where you'll really feel connected uh, here at the church. Notice uh, you can sign up online, so if you go to our website, Click on where it talks about all the growth groups. You can go there. You can actually uh, register, uh, let the leader know that you're uh, expecting to come, and uh, they start tomorrow. And so it'll be uh, exciting. Uh, The Monday morning group, that'll be by Zoom right now uh, until uh, Chick-fil-A decides to open up the uh, uh, eating area. Uh, It's where they used to meet, Uh, but right now they'll meet by Zoom. So if that's of interest to you, the Monday morning uh, men's group, uh, just contact Thomas, Pastor Thomas, and he'll answer any questions you have. As we're just about to start a new uh, month, our Bible reading plan is there on the right. Uh, As we finish up uh, numbers uh, this week, then we'll be beginning working on 1 John uh, starting the following uh, week. If you flip back uh, a page, Right here in this room, uh, we have, during our equipping hour, a class on how people change. 
One of the big priorities that we have here is we don't want to just simply share the good news of Jesus Christ and have people become uh, believers. We want people to become disciples. We want them to be uh, conforming to the image of Christ and learn how to be disciple makers. And so one of the ways that we do that is through our equipping hour on Sunday morning. I encourage you to join us as we're teaching how do I personally change? If there's an area in my life where I'm struggling, there's a, a fear, a particular sin area where I want God to bring change, that's what we're talking through uh, during the first hour. You can also watch uh, those live stream. Uh, those are online uh, each week, and you also can get past sessions uh, if you go to our website, and the audio and the handouts are there as well. Next week is going to be a time of fellowship. Uh, We've not been able to do this because of coronavirus, but next week outside uh, in the play area there, we're going to have a picnic. And what we're going to do is ask everybody to bring your own uh, meal uh, with you for your family. And from 1230 on to 2, we're just going to enjoy some time. Bring some games for your kids that they like or you'd like to share with others. We'll have some volleyball net up and some other activities uh, for us to enjoy. Just get to know each other uh, and to fellowship and invite you uh, to uh, participate in that. If you would grab your Bible, we're going to read God's Word. We're going to read from the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. This is a passage that uh, many times as a pastor uh, had worked through while working with high school students and with couples considering marriage. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, Let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have taught, been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you 
so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's a privilege to walk in the way that we ought because of what you've done in our lives. Lord, you call us to love others, to care for others, to bear their burdens. But Lord, you've been clear that it is your will that we hold and possess our own bodies in purity, that we don't defraud our brother or sister in Christ. Lord, we're not to live like we did before we became Christians, but we're to be pure and holy. And Lord, you said that if we choose to reject this commandment, we're not rejecting other men, but we're rejecting you. And Lord, that you're an avenger of those who choose to disregard your commands. Oh, Lord, we we just ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. Because, Lord, we know many times we've fallen short. Lord, we have not honored our brother and sister. Lord, we have defrauded. And, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that moving forward, we would pursue holiness, that we truly would want to honor one another. Lord, this is your call. This is your command for each of us as believers, and it's from you alone. Lord, may we love you and honor you and love others as we obey this command. Lord, help us for your glory. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us as we continue to worship. Ephesians 2 tells us that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith and not by works. And we walk this Christian life by grace alone as well. Join with us as we sing Grace Alone. Down the lost. 
Amen and amen to that. Well, uh, it is uh, good to be here with you this morning as we continue uh, our series on the household of God, of what the, the church is called to be and to do. And most of you have probably heard 
uh, of the group of individuals who were known as the Puritans. Uh, And you may not know uh, where or when they lived, uh, but you can probably guess how they lived. The Puritans were those men and women who lived during the English Reformation of the the 16th and 17th centuries. And those men and women believed that the Church of England was was too similar to the Roman Catholic Church. So they, they began to seek and pursue a pure church. And they themselves sought to be pure as Christians. And that nickname of the Puritans, it was not a name that they chose for themselves. They weren't like meeting one day like, hey, what should we call ourselves? Uh, They didn't come up with that name on their own. The the name, the Puritans, uh, was actually a name given to them by their enemies. It it was a a name that was intended to, to mock them, to make fun of them for their zeal for God. Their zeal for holiness. And we were going to really think about that. If, if the, the Puritans received that nickname, if that is what they were known for, of uh, what characterized them, a, a desire to be pure, that's not such a bad thing. Amen? But here's something to think about. If, if we were to be given a nickname... By our contemporary culture, what would our nickname be? What would we be known for? Some of us might be known as gossips or troublemakers. As one who has a a temper. And we don't want that type of reputation in and among our community. So if we were going to be known for something, what would we want our our friends and family, neighbors and co-workers, what would we want them to characterize us as? And as Christians, as we've, we've looked at this series on the church, we, we've seen what should mark us out as Christians. We should be known by our love for God and by our love for one another. We should, we should be known by our allegiance to Christ over anyone and everything. We should be characterized by our view of the the infinite value of knowing and pursuing Jesus Christ. And all of those things could really be be summarized in a single statement that we should be known by our holiness. In the early church, uh, as the Apostle Paul was writing to both the Romans and the Thessalonians... He said, this is what marks you out. In Romans sixteen nineteen. he says this, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. Say, hey, Roman church, you have a reputation for obedience to Christ. And he said this of the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
And I pray that we would be marked by that, that same reality, that we have turned from idols, that we have turned from all of these other worldly things that are pursuing our thoughts and our affections and our attention on a day-to-day basis, that we have turned from those and that we have turned to serve the living and true God. And as Christians and, and as a church, I pray that we would continue to grow in our knowledge and in our, our understanding and appreciation of all that Christ has done for us. He has saved us from the wrath of God. But I also pray that we would grow, not just in knowing what Christ has saved us from, but what He has saved us to. We are called to be moving in a direction towards something. Namely, we have been saved to be a holy people. And that is what this morning's message is about, that once we have come to know Christ, we are called to pursue holiness, to walk in holiness. And some of you might object to this idea and say, well, aren't we already made holy in Christ? And that very question reveals a lot of confusion, because the answer is yes, we have been made holy in Christ, but then... My whole point that we should still pursue holiness is is still 100% true. We have been made holy, and yet we are still called to pursue holiness. So what I want to to look at and to clarify this morning are, are four possessions relating to holiness that every believer has. Four possessions that we all have that will help to clarify what we are called to do with regards to holiness in the Christian life. And the first of these possessions can be said in this way, that in God we have the standard of holy perfection. In God we have the standard of holy perfection. If we're going to to look at holiness, we have to begin with where we get our definition from. Well, what's the, the measuring stick? How do we evaluate holiness? It's not ourselves. It's the perfect, omnipotent, omniscient being who has given life to all things. God himself. And, and the idea of holiness is, uh, is one of being set apart, uh, of uh, being sanctified. If there's a, a person or an object who is that's said to be holy, uh, that, that person or object has been uh, set aside for a special and specific use, to be used in the worship of God. That is the idea of a person or an, an object being holy. But when we speak about the holiness of God, we are saying that He is set apart from us. That He is altogether different. That He is above and beyond us. And ultimately, He is greater than His entire creation. And His holiness means that He is infinitely greater than we are. One systematic theologian defines God's holiness in this way. The holiness of God is His inherent and absolute greatness in which He is perfectly distinct from uh, and above everything outside of Himself and absolutely morally separated from sin. So there's two big concepts here. Number one is that, that God has a majestic holiness. 
That again, he is altogether greater than we are. We see this in, in verses such as Exodus 15:11. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And, and then the, the passage that uh, one of the songs that we sang this morning is based upon. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. The, the vision that Isaiah saw of the, the throne of God. And this is what he sees the angels saying to one another. He said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Those verses speak of the majestic holiness of God. But then there is also a moral holiness that God has. Where He is perfectly and infinitely pure. That He is not stained by sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is morally perfect and pure and so as a result of His moral perfection, He now calls those who have been made in His image, human beings, to also be holy. This is the, the very... Uh, command that he gives to the nation of Israel in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2. He says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the moral purity that we are called to. And because God is holy, he demands this holiness of us. This is what we have to see, that God is the standard of holiness. He is the one that we measure ourselves up against. But when we do that, how do we measure up? We see all of our sinfulness. And and what stood out to me this, this month as we've been reading the book of Numbers is, is the, the people of Israel as, as God, the glory of God has descended upon the tabernacle. And we read very meticulously how the people of Israel were supposed to arrange themselves around the tabernacle, right? That's everyone's favorite part of Numbers in the very beginning, how they're supposed to camp and set out and, and do all of that. But think about this. The glory of God was in their midst, in their center, always visible, And they became aware of the presence of God among them. And as they began to rebel against God over and over again, they they saw the judgment of God repeatedly. In Numbers chapter 16, we have what is known as Korah's Rebellion, where uh, this leader, Korah, comes with 250 other leaders and says to Moses, well, you think you're the only one that, that God is working through? We don't think so. There's insurrection against Moses and against Aaron. And so in in judgment, to to demonstrate that Moses was God's chosen prophet, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his family. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the other 250 men who were participants in that rebellion and and what's amazing is in the very next chapter god sets up a sign to establish moses and aaron as his chosen uh prophet and priest so to speak 
Now, and Aaron's rod buds. But at the end of chapter 17, in, in Numbers, there's these, these two verses that are remarkable. Because in seeing all of this judgment, the people of Israel have come to a conclusion. This is what they say. Numbers chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. The people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. Are we all to perish? See, when we compare ourselves, when we are in the presence of a holy and perfect God, we begin to see all of our sinfulness. The people of Israel realized we have a problem and a situation because we're trying to live with a holy God and we are very sinful people. That's the conclusion that they came to. And the question that they ask, are we all to perish? That's the exact same question that we're supposed to ask and wrestle with as we read the book of Numbers. If God is this holy, then what man can come into his presence? How is that possible if God is that holy? We need to compare ourselves. We need to see God as the standard of holy perfection. The great reformer John Calvin says this, says, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Indeed, we, we must see the holiness of God and then see ourselves in light of that. And no man will see himself accurately until he compares himself to a holy God. There was a, a theologian who recently commented and said that there seems to have been a, a switch in the minds of, of most Americans over the course of the 20th century that uh, it used to be that we compared ourselves to Christ. But o- over the course of the 20th century, people began to, to compare themselves to someone else. As you're talking with people and uh, having gospel conversations, people love to compare themselves to Hitler, right? Because when we compare ourselves to Hitler, right, how do we, how do we fare? We, we all come out looking amazing, right? And, and that's where that, that's become the kind of the standard way of measuring ourselves now. Now, that He is the one that we compare to. We compare ourselves to the worst of the worst, and we come out smelling like roses. But that's the exact opposite of what we are called to do. We're not called to, to compare ourselves and measure our, our character according to the worst of the worst. We're called to measure ourselves according to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And when we do that... When we, when we see ourselves in light of the holiness of God, then we will pray differently. We'll, we'll pray as the, the tax collector did in Luke 18, in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Where the Pharisee, do you remember what he did? He, he was constantly comparing himself to other people. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like so-and-so over there. But then in verse 13, we see this, But the tax collector, standing far off, 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the conclusion that we all need to come to. That when compared to a, a holy God, when, when God is seen as the standard of righteousness, we are all sinners. And that is exactly the conclusion that we need to come to because that conclusion will then force us to pray like the, the tax collector and, and to look to Christ in faith. Christ, be merciful to me. I no longer trust in myself. I trust in who you are and what you have done. I trust in your perfect life and your sacrificial death. I trust that you rose again on the third day and now have ascended to the right hand of God. I believe and, and trust that if I look to you in faith, that I will be rescued, reconciled, and redeemed. That is what we need to conclude. That we, how the, the response that we should have in, in looking at the character of a holy God and comparing ourselves to Him. That is the, the first thing that we possess as it relates to holiness. We have a standard of perfect holiness in God. And then secondly, in, in the gospel, we have been called to a holy purpose. In the gospel, we have been called to a holy purpose. And we've, we've looked at this in, in weeks gone by, but why has God saved us? As we've looked at the Gospel of John, we could answer that question that God has saved us because He loved us. Right? We saw that in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That God saved us out of love, even while we were in rebellion against Him. That's an accurate answer. But there's uh, also a second answer. That God saves us because in doing so, He gets the glory. And we saw this even at the, the beginning of our study on the church. Uh, that the church exists not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. And as God is working in human history to save and redeem a people for Himself, He gets all the glory. So those are our, our accurate answers that we've looked at in the past. But there's a third and, and also thoroughly biblical answer that we could point to. Of why has God saved us? That we have been saved so that we could be made holy. God, God has worked to rescue us so that He could change us, so that He could make us like His Son. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That is what we have been called to. We have a, a holy purpose. And as I said earlier, in the gospel we have been saved from the wrath of God and we have been saved to holiness. And the theologian J.I. Packer, who just a couple weeks ago passed away, 
put it this way. He says, in reality, holiness is the goal of our redemption. As Christ died in order that we may be justified, so we are justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. That is God's will for us. Even as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, right? You ever wonder what God's will is for you? I don't know the the specifics, but I know the general. God's will is your sanctification. Literally, your holiness. This is what we have been called to. Now, the Roman Catholic Church uses the adjective saint to describe someone who who is extremely pious, who... uh, that someone they have canonized as, as being super righteous, so to speak. And we often think of saints in that way, right? But the New Testament reality is that every single believer is a saint. And what does it mean to be a saint? It literally just means holy one. That we are all saints. We are all holy ones. That, that is the calling to which we have been called. That is why we have been saved. We have been saved to be set apart, to be the people of God, to be His saints. Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to... A holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And again, if God is intent on making us holy because he himself is holy. Uh, and so in the gospel, this is the calling that we have. We have a, a holy purpose. This is the, the purpose for which we have been saved. And when we understand that, it it provides clarity and direction for us here and now, right? We we do not live for ourselves. We are not saved so that we could then turn and, and do whatever we want. We have been saved so that we would be set apart and live for God. To be sanctified, to be made holy in Christ, to the praise and glory of God. That is the... The holy purpose to which we have been called. And then that leads to our, our third possession that we have. So we have a, a perfect standard of righteousness in God. And then we, we have a, a holy calling in the gospel. And in Christ, we have been given a holy position. If you, you turn with me to the, the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 will inform our understanding of this. In Christ we have been given a holy position. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, says this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And Colossians, the, the big theme of the book of Colossians is how 
if we have believed in Christ, we have been united with Him. That, that the moment we believe, our sin is placed upon Him and His righteousness is placed upon us. So our sin has been removed and now we have the righteousness of Christ upon us. We are, in essence, clothed in His robes of perfection. And, and look at the way that the Apostle Paul words this here. He says, you have been presented. Right? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us to God. How? Holy and blameless and above reproach before God. This is, this is the holy position that we now have if we are in Christ. That we have been made holy. If you, if you turn the page and jump over to Colossians chapter 3. This idea is, is repeated. In verse 12, Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Say, this is who you are. Right? God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And what's remarkable... He says, this is who you are. This is your holy position. And because that is our holy position, how should we now live and act? There's implications to this holy position that we have. Even here in verses 12 through 14, he says, put on then. There's a command. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here's what we are to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony well the the, the logic that Paul is using here do all of those things obey all of these commands because of the holy position that you have been given in Christ. This is the, the holy calling that we have. And when we begin to understand this holy position that we have in Christ, that we have been made holy, there's a lot of implications to this. This is, this is life-altering, worldview-changing. One pastor and theologian explains it this way, that our union with Christ... It's like being released from a nasty prison. It says that it, when we were in prison, you used to curl up in bed. And when someone walked by because you didn't want to get beaten, you would, you'd pass contraband through the wall. You, you would threaten and intimidate people to get first in line for the grub. But once you are out, you don't act like that anymore. That's the idea, that once we have been united with Christ in faith, we are no longer enslaved to sin. That we are taken and freed from all of that. We are given a new and holy position. We have been united with Christ, and so now we live differently. We are, in essence, in a different world. But also, here's something to, to wrap your brain around. And even though we have been given this holy position in Christ, we have this holy position, but we are still sinners. Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a phrase to describe this tension. 
that, that we are, we have a holy position and we are still seniors. sinners. This is what he said. So it's a Latin phrase. It says, simul justice et peccator. Simul, meaning at the same time. So we get the idea of simultaneously. Justice sounds like just. Et is the Latin word for and. And then peccator, you're probably like, what in the world is that? That's the Latin word for sinner. This is what Martin Luther was saying. We are simultaneously, at the same time, just and sinner. And even though we have a new position in Christ, we are still struggling with sin. We are still battling against it on a daily basis. So on the one hand, we have a holy calling. On the, one, on the other hand, we have a sinful flesh. On the one hand, we are morally blameless before God through the life and death of Jesus, but we are still living under the power and influence of sin on a day-to-day basis. All right, so we have a, a positional holiness, but what we do not have immediately when we are united with Christ is a practical holiness. And this is where this comes in of the big thing I want to look at this morning. That we don't often think about, but that we are called to pursue holiness. So we've looked at these first three, that God is the, the perfect holy standard, that in the gospel we have a perfect holy calling. And in Christ we have a holy position. But now, this fourth possession that we have is that as saints, we have a charge to pursue practical holiness. Again, all of this is connected with what has come before. Because we have a holy position, now that has implications of how we are called to live. But most of us really don't ever want to live that out. And, and most churches don't really talk about this, this call, this urgency to address sin in our life, to live a life of holiness. There's also a lot of competing views out there regarding how we are to, to grow in holiness. Sometimes it's the, the let go and let God, uh, which doesn't work well if you're a rock climber. Uh, and the, the idea that we are just sanctified by believing. That if we believe in Christ, there will be this mysterious transformation in our hearts and it'll just just magically deal with all of the the sin and all of the the ugliness in our hearts and in our lives and that's just not the case we see over and over again in the new testament a a practical charge to pursue holiness why don't you turn over with me to philippians chapter 2 we're going to go to several different places here in the New Testament to, to look at this charge to pursue a practical holiness. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul writes this, Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to what he says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean by that? How how are we to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, when he speaks of working out our salvation, he is not talking about our justification. Our justification, our, our righteous standing before God, where we receive that holy position, it is not based upon anything that we do. Our holy position, our justification, is based completely upon what Christ has done. And we are saved, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. So because that is true... We don't have to work anything out there. What we are called to work out is our sanctification. This, this lifelong process of becoming more and more holy, of becoming more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is saying here. And he says to work out. There you go. All get gym memberships. Go work out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is going to require effort on your part. This is not a let go and let God. This is not a sit back and a a mystery will take place. This is a no. Go put some sweat in. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. This is something that we are commanded to pursue. Again, our positional holiness should lead to a practical holiness. So we're there in Philippians, and let, let's turn over to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, what we read in our scripture reading this morning. It's a very powerful and a very practical passage. And most people just kind of speed right past it talk with a lot of uh, high school and college students who are who were wondering and thinking about what God wants them to do with their life. Should I go into this field? Should I major here? Should I go to this college? What does God want me to do? So, well, God cares less about those things of where you go to school and what job you choose. And he cares more about the, the way that you live. How you live. How are you going to conduct yourself in the school that you go and attend? How are you going to to work for God's glory rather than your own? Those are the bigger things that God cares about. Because again, His will for our life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Again, literally, your Holiness. This is what God wants of us. This is His will for our life. That each one of you know how to control His own body in holiness and honor. Now skip the end of verse 3. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That this, is, this is God's desire that we know how to conduct ourselves in holiness and in honor. And, and we do this... Because, we look in verse 7, 
For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. See, all of this is, is wrapped up together. So what has God called us to? And now we are called to, to live it out. The commands are based upon the indicatives of what God has done. It's a powerful, powerful passage. And then turn over with me again to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says this. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's a sobering statement, isn't it? And, and what is being said here? That we are to strive and pursue after two things. One, peace. But we'll talk about that in another sermon. But the, the second thing that's being commanded here, that we are to strive and to labor for, we are to pursue the holiness. And without that holiness, there's, there's a, a remarkable statement. Without that holiness, it says no one... We'll see the Lord. And what does that mean? Again, this is, this is not saying that we earn our salvation. That, hey, if you, if you attain to that holiness, you've earned your way into seeing God. And that's not what it's saying. What it is saying, it's calling us to exert ourselves to pursue holiness. And the reality is, is that all who have that holy position. Everyone who has been changed and transformed by the power of the gospel, everyone who is in Christ will also be marked by holiness. That holiness is something that we will be marked by and yet we must also pursue and strive toward. Another voice from from church history on this matter is uh, the Bishop J.C. Ryle who was the Bishop of Liverpool from 1880 to 1900. And again, these aren't new ideas that we're battling against. Right? This idea that we'll just be magically sanctified and magically, mysteriously made holy. Listen to what he says over a century ago. He says, Is it wise to proclaim, in so bald, naked, and unqualified a way as many do, that the holiness of converted people is by faith only and not at all by personal exertion? Is it according to the proportion of God's word? I doubt it. That faith in Christ is the root of all holiness. No well-instructed Christian will ever think of denying, but surely the scriptures teach us that in following holiness, the true Christian needs personal exertion and work as well as faith. And this is much of what we discussed a couple weeks ago as we looked at the power of the church. And the power of the church is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who who fuels and energizes our spiritual growth. He's the one who empowers uh, the growth and expansion of the church as the gospel goes forth. And so in our spiritual growth, 
All of it will come by the power and energy of the Holy Spirit, but we are still called to act, to obey, and to exert ourselves, to pursue holiness. And as we do this, the Spirit will bring about the transformation of our hearts and our minds in Christ. You can think of it this way. A farmer, he plows his field, he fertilizes the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the crops... And while he does all of this, what is he also dependent upon? Rain. He's dependent upon forces outside of himself. He's dependent upon the God who to send the rain. But while he is dependent upon outside forces, he knows also that if he doesn't plow, if he doesn't plant, there will be no crop. There will be no harvest if he doesn't put in the effort. And so... And speaking about this illustration, this idea that we are called to, to be as farmers, Jerry Bridges says this, Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer should do. That we must be faithful to labor for our own sanctification. And we are called to pursue holiness and as we do that, we are dependent upon God for the growth. But we also need to be faithful in our part. If we do not labor, we will not grow. If we do not pursue holiness, we will never obtain it. And though I'm urging diligent and dependent effort in the pursuit of holiness, there are, there's two qualifications that need to be made here. And the first one is this. That holiness must first take root in the human heart. That's what we, we have to understand. That holiness must take root in the human heart. We are called to, to be transformed in our inner man, to, to become more and more like Christ in our thoughts, in our desires, in our pursuits, in our emotions, and in our decisions. We are to grow in Christ-likeness. And if it's not happening in the heart, it really doesn't matter what's happening externally. But also this. So holiness must first take root in the human heart. But secondly, holiness must also be shown in outward obedience to Christ's commands. There's an, an internal reality and an external reality. And that holy begin, holiness begins inside of us, but it must not stay there. It must also be manifested outwardly. And, and many people are against uh, rule-keeping. They're, they're against legalism. And, and that's a, a good thing. That sentiment is appropriate. But I've also seen many people say that any type of rule-keeping is legalism. And that's just not the case. In, in doing so, they're, they're lumping the, the many commands that we have in Christ with the, the rules of man. And they're saying they are, they are equal and we're not supposed to be rule keepers. It's all about the heart. And you say, well, I, I understand what you're saying, but th there's more to this. The commands of Christ are not the same as the rules of man. The, the rules of men will never make you holy, but you will never be holy without the commands of Christ. 
And you can't just, just throw all of that out and say, well, you're just being legalistic. We have to see and understand that holiness involves both internal heart transformation and external obedience. And one without the other will bring condemnation. And in Jesus' own time, the Pharisees, they had the second of these down really good. They, they had outward obedience. Man, they, they had all of the boxes checked. They were great at it. And Jesus says, oh, but there's something missing. The heart transformation. You don't know God. You, you misinterpret scripture. You are whitewashed tombs with dead men inside. That's what Jesus was saying to them. And again, in, in, in seeing that and reading that in the pages of Scripture, there is a tendency in trying to avoid one error that we pendulum swing all the way over to the other. Say, I sure want to avoid that, which is good. But we don't want to swing all the way over and then begin to say, well, then I'm just going to, to limit holiness only to matters of the heart. That holiness is only internal. And that any call to obey the commands of Christ is legalism. That is just not the picture that we see in Scripture. That holiness begins in the heart, but then it permeates our entire being. And that if we are changed and transformed inwardly, there will also be uh, at that transformation in our actions, in our decisions, what we uh, pursue, again, what we love, how we think. All of that leads to the decisions that we make in our actions. And so we must strive and pursue holiness. And if you've been following Christ for, for any period of time, you, you begin to, to see and understand this tension, right? We, we have a, a holy position, a holy calling in Christ. But then day to day, we're still struggling with and battling against sin. Right? And as a, as a church, we should be marked not by perfection. It's not, not what we're saying here. None of us are going to be perfectly holy because that is reserved for God alone. But we are, we are all called to pursue faithful holiness. That we are called to, to strive to obey all that Christ has commanded, to, to work diligently in this. And because that is a command given to every single one of us as Christians, and it's a command for the church, that should have implications for what we do as a church, should it not? Right? If, we, if we are all called to strive and pursue holiness, then we should be talking about how do we address sin in our lives. This, this sin that besets us and is dominating us. How do we address that? How do we grow? How do we change? Well, it would be great if we had a, an equipping hour class called How People Change, wouldn't it? Right? Again, this is, uh, this is the outflowing. If this is what Christ is commanding of His church, this is what we're going to do. We want to come alongside you and, and shepherd you and challenge you to be exerting effort in this way. 
Here's also something else to think about. I mentioned it previously a couple weeks ago. But you might be overwhelmed with how do I pursue holiness? Right? How, how do I effectively grow in my relationship with Christ? How do I become more and more like Him? Well, last week we saw we don't do that alone. Because we're blind to our blind spots. We need others around us to point us. Uh, and fellowship and exhortation in the church are the guardrails that keep us moving towards Christ-likeness. But also what's about to begin this week in our, in our growth groups. Uh, and the things that we do in our growth groups of, of reading scripture. And coming together and talking about what does this mean and how should it impact my life. And what we do with our... Our, our journaling, our KFCA journaling, which if you don't know about that, come talk to me afterwards. Uh, knowledge should lead to faith, and faith should lead to a transformation of our character. Again, that's the, the internal aspect of holiness. And then if we are changed and transformed inwardly, there, there's going to be actions that flow from that. And the reason that we study the Bible that way is because that's how we grow. Not just by accumulating knowledge, not by doing the external checkboxes, but truly pursuing Christ in heart, mind, and then in action. That's what we long to see taking place in our church, and that's what we long to do together, to pursue Christ as a community. What does that look like as, as we are pursuing Christ individually? The outcome, you can can think of holiness in this way. The mind is filled with the knowledge of God and fixed on what is good. The eyes turn away from from sensuality and, and shudder at evil. The mouth decides to tell the truth and refuses to gossip and slander or speak what is coarse or obscene. Our hearts are earnest and steadfast and, and gentle towards others. Full of joy instead of hopelessness, patience instead of irritability, kindness instead of anger, humility instead of pride, thankfulness instead of envy. The body is sexually pure, being reserved for the the privacy of marriage between one man and one woman. And the feet move towards others with love and affection and away from conflict and division. And the hands are quick to help. And very quickly ready to be folded in prayer. I love that description. It's from Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness. And in that book he describes somehow the modern church has has missed this emphasis. That we're we're so focused on other things. And there are good things, but we, we miss the reality of what we are called to. That we have been called to a holy purpose. We have the, the standard of holy perfection in God. In Christ, we have been given a holy position. And as saints, we have a charge to pursue practical holiness. And some of you may be feeling, well, if this is the, the charge, it seems like God will never be satisfied with my efforts to be holy. Right? You can't. How can I ever do enough to satisfy God? Like, well, that's very true. That's an accurate sense. You can never do enough to satisfy God. 
But that's not what God is calling us to do. God is already satisfied, not with what we have done, but with what Christ has done. So, so we're not laboring and striving to satisfy God. We're laboring and striving to please God as a Heavenly Father. We're already in the family. And now we are simply living out our new position. I love what A.W. Tozer says. Speaking of God, He is not hard to please, though He may be hard to satisfy. That we can be pleasing to God as we labor diligently, right? As we are that hard-working farmer, laboring with diligent effort. And again, we can experience an extraordinary holiness through ordinary means of being in the Word, being in prayer, being in fellowship. And it's all going to be a process. Don't be overwhelmed if you realize that you fall short, if you see areas of sin in your life. It's a, a wonderful illustration from a biblical counselor, David Pallison. He says that sanctification is like a man walking up the stairs with a yo-yo. And there are a lot of ups and downs, uh, but there's an overall trajectory of growth. He's overall moving upwards. And this is what we are called to attain to. And we are called to holiness. God is the standard. We compare ourselves to Him. We see how far short we fall, but then we continue to move toward Him. And we continue to move toward Him together. Uh, as, I, as I talk with my uh, growth groups every year, I, I, I tend to, to say to my group of guys, and say, hey, we this year are going to be a band of brothers. That we're going to commit to one another, that we are going to, to help one another pursue Christ. And some of that means, again, I'm going I'm to speak into your life, you're going to speak into my life. I'm going to be asking some hard questions, you can ask me hard questions. But we're going to be moving together towards Christ-likeness. We're going to be moving together towards holiness. And this is what we are called to embrace as Christians. This is what we have to be reminded of over and over again. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says regarding this, that we are called to, to put effort in. He says, but thank God we are enabled to fight the good fight of faith. For the moment we believe and are justified by faith and are born again of the Spirit of God, we have the ability to move toward Him to fight the good faith. He says, so the New Testament method of sanctification is to remind us of that. And having reminded us of it, it says, now then, go and do it. And may that be what we go and do this week and every week. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you, worshiping you as the standard of holiness, worshiping you as the one who is perfect, who is greater than anything and everything else in all creation. Lord, you are majestically holy and you are morally holy without spot or blemish and yet Lord even as we see this we see our own sinfulness 
Lord, we are impressed with our need for someone else to represent us before you. We cannot stand before you in and of ourselves, Lord. And so we thank you and we praise you for sending your Son, for calling us, and not just to to save us from your wrath, but to call us to purity, to call us to holiness, to call us to be a part of your family. And now you are in the process of of working within us and taking our positional standing that we have in you and now working that out day to day in our lives, changing us so that we demonstrate a practical holiness. But Lord, we need your strength. We cannot labor in our own wisdom and effort. So we ask for your spirit to empower us, to show us our sin, to energize us, to to strive for your holiness, without which no one will see you. So, Father, we ask that you would work in us and through us. Make us holy. Make us like your sons, so that we might be able to be faithful ambassadors, faithful witnesses to those around us, that when they see us, they would know us and see that we are those who are zealous to be like Christ, that those who are zealous to be pure and holy. Lord, may we be known for that, not for our own praise, but to the praise and honor and glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us again as we continue to worship God and sing all glory be to Christ.
Amen. Praise the Lord. We're thankful that we have a standard of righteousness in God and that Christ has already attained to that standard for us so that we no longer have to seek to satisfy God's standard, but we can seek to glorify God by bearing fruit for Him. Go and worship the Lord. You're dismissed.